This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And George Saunders, it is such a pleasure to see you. And for those of you out listening in the world, obviously you know George from all of his bestsellers and also his Man Booker Prize for Lincoln and the Bardo and also, in general, just being a really great guy. I mean, Thank George, you. we're fond of you. We're really fond well, of you. Liberation Day is your first collection since 10th of December, and it is spectacular. And we're going to get to Liberation Day in a second. But there's something I need to ask you about because I found it in my research as I was getting ready to do this. You used to think that great writing was hard reading. Yes, I did. And I, I want to talk about that evolution because I think you might not be alone in that. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, I I grew up in Chicago, kind of mm -hmm. quasi working class, and so uh, was just a little awed by literature and by the whole enterprise. Didn't know any writers. Really, didn't know any artists. You know, working people. So I just assumed that art was that thing that you could not do. You know, or that you or that you could only rarely do, or you had to stand on your toes to do. You know, when I was young, I was kind of a a dope. You know, but kind of a sweet dope, and I would like pick up Nietzsche or pick up. Faulkner and just go, whoa, what the, you know, at that time, my admiration meant I was stopped cold by the prose. I couldn't understand it. Therefore, it had to be great, which ran completely counter to my experience in the real world of art, which at that time was music and movies, mm -hmm. where, of course, you were, you understood, you were totally wrapped up in it. You were af afraid or you were uh, fascinated. So, or, you know, with Monty Python, you were laughing because you totally got it, you know? Mm -hmm. So for me, I mean, embarrassingly, the, the, the big developmental thing was for me to go, oh, duh, if it, you know, the, the things that moved you in real life really moved you, of course, there's a connection to literature. That's what literature is. It's, it's connecting with a, a reader and a writer connecting. So, but it took me a really long time to, to figure that out. Your last book, at, uh, a sw at Swim in a Pond in the Rain, I always want to call it At Swim Two Birds. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. That's better. <laughs> I do this with titles sometimes. I just, you know, and I, I have a tendency to short, uh, shorten them. So I think I'm yeah. probably going to end up just calling it a swim. You made me care about the Russians in an entirely new way when I read that book. But one of the things you said recently to your editor, Andy Ward, who I'm very fond of as well, was that writing that book about the Russians, where you interrogate these stories and you take us along with you, and it's based on a course you taught for years, made you a better writer. Yes. And then we get Liberation Day. So can we just talk about the connection? between a swim and liberation day before we get into sort of the nitty gritty of sure. liberation day. I mean, if I'm being totally honest, I don't exactly understand what happened because I wouldn't have predicted that, you know, what I did for about a year and a half is I just read those seven or eight or nine Russian stories over and over and close reading, you know, like I would claim something in the text and I'd go, wait a minute, let me check that out. And then get into the story for the rest of the day to make sure I was right. Um, I kind of thought that might mess my writing up. You know, you become too analytical, too too um, linear in your thinking. But I, the model I have in my mind is that somehow you you wade into those stories deeply like that, analytically, and it kind of permeates your artistic body um, and does all kinds of things to your subconscious that you don't actually know. You, you don't know what they are. You couldn't have predicted them. Then when you go to write, you're just writing from a a, a different stance, I guess. You know, the, what I say to my students sometimes is you at the beginning of the Russian courses, imagine you have a big silo over your head, you know, mm -hmm. and everything you put in there, uh, you, what you read, what you think, what you see, the analysis of what you read, all that stuff is good. Just more, more, more. 
it comes in, something magical happens, let's say in your chest, it becomes um, light, you know, and it kind mm -hmm. of, it kind of then informs everything you do. And actually, you don't have to know how, you know, right. so something like that happened with the Russian book. And in practice, what it meant was as I was working on these stories, I would sometimes get to a place where habitually I would go this direction. And those Russians were kind of saying, hey, you know what? You could go the other direction. And so that was really cool. I don't, can't explain it. One of the things I love, too, from A Swim is where you're talking about revision as a chance for the author's intuition to take over. And I really felt that in Liberation Day. I really felt where you're saying I wanted to zig when, when instead people thought I might zag. And I, there's a lot of love and a lot of space in this book that I have not felt in previous novels. And I feel like this was written over time, maybe. And also you didn't, I mean, you've been very clear in past interviews that you don't map things out, but this feels so much looser. And I don't know if that's because of the revision process or because we were all at home for two and a half years and we had a lot of yeah. time. Yeah. I, I mean, what, from my perspective, it felt like I was trying some new things because I'm 63 and there are so many things that I feel that I haven't said. And, you know, so that kind of urgency that's like, well, and actually that Lincoln book helped me with this a little bit because that was a much more earnest book and it landed and there are people who responded. So that in, emboldens you a bit to say, okay, time is short, hopefully not too short, but it's short, shorter. Why are you withholding earnestness? You know, why are you um, tiptoeing? tiptoeing around positive phenomenon let's say it you know if you feel it let's say it so it's kind of a nice uh later life thing to do is just to say you know let's go all in on this if i've felt it it's got to have a literary corollary you know there's nothing that can't be written about so it's something it's a, it was a real feeling of freedom in, in writing this book yeah and it might have been because we were home you know like you say you're like well i've got twice as much time as usual let's take a few chances Obviously, you don't write stories in a linear fashion and put them in a collection and say, here we go, we're done. I mean, which story showed up first? Mother's Day. And okay. that was one that I think I was, I mean, uh, early, early form, but it was probably 12 years ago or something. There was a, with one narrator and I just kept nursing it along and getting rejected. And then it finally, you know, uh, and I think I took that on right after I finished Lincoln, the Lincoln novel. Oh. So that was quite, you know, it was really sort of a 10th of December story in a way, you know. Uh, yeah, that, so that was the first. And then House, or My House was the very last. I, and My House is a story I really love. It's so delicate in a way, and yet it's very George. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I'm explaining that well, but I would recognize that in a second as a George Saunders story, and yet I wasn't quite expecting that little turn that comes yeah, from that, the narrator. And I was just like, no, that sentence okay. right there is every short story writer's dream. I, uh -huh. You know, I wasn't expecting, I, 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 the thing that I was kind of interested in this book is that, you know, you get to this state of life and you mm -hmm. had some success. There's a tendency to, oh, well, I know what I do, you know, and other people know what I do. And what an exciting thing to be an old fart who goes, guess what? I do other things, you know, <laughs> just to kind of, you know, move out the fences a little bit, make the perimeter bigger. And then, you, as you say, you know, in a sense, what you're doing, instead of trying to declare who you are, you're trying to find out and mm -hmm. um, you're going to be getting different valences, even from your own subconscious. Uh, and what you have to do, I guess, is sort of what I find I have to do is at the beginning, I have to kind of, uh, it's hard to explain, but by making a certain voice, then I'm going to force myself to do new things. Like in that story, the voice is for me very 
measured and realistic and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. regular, regular, mm -hmm, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's almost like DNA. Once you once you do that, then you're committed to continuing to do it, which means you're con you're committed to finding some kind of power, even in that somewhat limited mode, which is great fun. You know? It's also very very short. I mean, there are a couple of stories, and Sparrow, I think, is also mm -hmm. really short as well. Yeah. And it's not microfiction by or flash flash fiction by any stretch of the imagination. But tighter than even you usually write. And That's the Chekhov, you know, okay. I, I, just reading Chekhov and sort of going, oh, gosh, you can write a story. He, he has this famous thing where he, someone said, how do you write stories? And he said, well, give me a topic. Yeah. And the guy said, OK, how about this ashtray right here? He goes, OK. And he went home and supposedly that night wrote this famous story, the ashtray. Right. So I love the idea that, you, you know, my stories tend to be banned in death, you know, or there's something grand, epic. And I, and I, I like that, you know. But but it was kind of challenging to think, I wonder if you could take the tiniest sliver of a real situation, could you make that into a story? And Sparrow, too. I mean, I don't want to give anything away, obviously, because this is such a fun collection to bounce through. But the way that story twists as well, too. We meet this woman and you think, oh, well, we know who she is. We know who she is. And yet you found a new way to look at her. Yeah. That to me, that's the beauty of the form is you it's all about, you know, creating an expectation and then delivering on it. But if you just create it and deliver on it squarely, the reader's bored. So, you know, you have to sort of acknowledge the expectation you've created and then sort of just give it a half turn or, or sometimes. Yeah, it's kind of hard to explain. But but so lately, my process is you I do something energetic to create an expectation. Uh -huh. Then I kind of say, all right. So um, like in that story the first order expectation was kind of dark and kind of sad. And I thought, you know, I've been living in this world a long time. There are a lot of happy surprises in it, you know, for all of its darkness. I wonder if I could just sort of gently guide the story to a happier conclusion or one that actually is more realistic, more truthful, you know. Um, so that, so that's, it. again, from the Russians, what I learned in reading them that closely is that it was a series of them saying A, me expecting something, and getting that, but with a little extra, which mm -hmm. created a new expectation. So in a sense, it's, it's, um, you could see it as the reader is uh, making a kind of a guided tour mm -hmm. for the writer, for the reader, rather. The, mm -hmm. the writer's making it for the reader. And the idea is to sort of show you your own mind. Look where mm -hmm. your expectations appear. Look what your habitual way of thinking is. Look how negatively or positively your expectations are. And then just gently saying, oh, look, you, you know, the world is a lot bigger than your projections of it isn't that fun and then you go to the next story <laughs> it feels like there's a much bigger sense of play in liberation day than in Ir even pastoralia even civil warland and bad decline there just feels like there's more play and a little more punch even if the story isn't quite like i can actually sort of imagine you having a really good time writing all of these stories and figuring out sort of what the rewrite's going to look like and what needs to change and because I think you do edit on a sentence level. Oh yeah, right? like yeah, like okay. yeah, cra like crazy. That's for me. That's the whole thing. It's just you know, I sort of like in the same way that a, well, a roller coaster designer would have to know, you know, his first job is to make sure that that first hill kicks your butt, you know, and and that's done by raising or lowering, you know. So there's a really a lot of that kind of what Toby Wolf used to call lapidary work. But I want to go back to something you were saying earlier about checking our own expectations and and sort of understanding how we're experiencing your work coming from the other side of things. And if folks don't know you're a Buddhist, they know you are now, because that all <laughs> sounded very, very Buddhist. 
to me, and I love the idea of that connection. So is that deliberate or am I just reading into it because I know you're a Buddhist? No, no, you're totally right. It's not okay. deliberate, but I think it's natural. You know, you know, in other words, uh, yeah. I mean, I think you could also probably look at that book from a Catholic perspective, which is where I started out. But I guess my thought is, you know, those, the, those Buddhist ideas are so beautiful and they, they work in every situation because they're basically, as I understand it, it's like, hey, you know what? Don't be afraid of the truth. That this, what's actually occurring right now is totally fine. Go ahead and look at it. And that's also the, the mantra for fiction, you know, and not only about the writer looking at the world, but the writer looking at her story. You know, if, if, she, if she gets to page six and goes, ah, I can't stand this, you know, the kind of, the, I guess, the approach is to go, oh, yeah, OK, that's fine. Why not? You know, and if you say I can't stand it because of X, well, then you can fix it, you know. So it's kind of that that sense of being OK with things as they are. And a little spirit of fun and then messing with them. Buddhist ideas are very large in my life, although I'm not much of a practitioner anymore, unfortunately. But but the ideas are, are large. And I think they are exactly the ideas that I have about the world these days, you know, the, about our ego and our self and that kind of very natural uh, focus that we have on protecting us, you know, is it's totally makes sense. And it's also the cause of so much of our suffering. But most of us can't get out of that loop because we love things. You know, we love ourselves. We love our family. So that that's definitely at the core of the book, I think. Yeah. Liberation Day feels expansive in a way, and it's not just because the titular story, which we will get to, because that is a wild story, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> I just trusted you. I, tr <laughs> I did you. not Thank know you. what was going And I just trusted you. And the payoff was amazing. This idea that you can work wherever you want on whatever temporal plane for whatever amount of time in a story. I mean, I so frequently hear people say, well, you know, short stories aren't really my thing. And I'm a little bit of an evangelist for short stories because mm -hmm. I do think that the amount of craft that goes into one and the things that you need to be able to do in a very compressed amount of time, both on the page and just, you know, straight word count. There's a lot to be said for that. I mean, do you prefer writing stories over not because Liberation Day, the story is really for a story, it's long, but it's, it's not long. a novella. Uh, no, no, probably not quite. Although I never really understood what that, you know, I always felt like if you yeah. if you pronounce it a novella, then it, then it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. I think but, there is a word count that goes with novella, yeah. but I can never remember. Don't tell me. Don't tell me. I'll, I, I won't. I'll start I won't. shooting for it. No, I love, I, the story form is so, I think, so beautiful. And I think, you know, when people, it's, it's a, a taste you have to cultivate, I think, for sure. Maybe part of the reason it's difficult for some people is that it really, unlike so many things in our world, it doesn't win by sheer volume or by complete uh, openness or um, linearity. It's a very... Uh, it's a little bit like the art song, you know, I mean, it's, it's got beauties. Once your ear gets tuned to them, it's an incredibly exquisite form, but you have to say, well, the way I think of it is a story has two layers. There's the, the top one where things are happening and you want to know if so-and-so lives and if they, if the love survives and so on. And then there's an understory that's always coming up. And that's what the story is really about. And I think in the great ones, we don't really, the writer doesn't know either. You know, she's, telling the story of whoever, you know. And meanwhile, there's something else working in her subconscious that's coming up. And I think what Joyce called the epiphany was when that understory punctures the overstory. And we all go, oh my God, that's what it was about, you know. So that's hard. And it's subtle. It's really a subtle, a, a subtle form, you know. But I also love the way that, especially in a time like ours, you know, there's so many viewpoints and so many uh, levels of understanding and so many 
physical environments and so many mm. cultural environments. So if you take a story, you could at least say, well, this, these are 10, nine shards of glass that fell off the world, you know. Uh, yes, and the variety and the contradiction is part of the patterning, you know. Can we talk about Liberation Day, though, as a concept? Because it is it is a very long story. Custer makes an appearance. I was not expecting Custer. No. And I would, I'm assuming there's a little bit of post-Lincoln and the Bardo happening in this story for you. But would you set up Liberation Day for oh, listeners, boy. please? Oh, that's, that's like a, a, the most difficult Jeopardy question. In this futuristic world, uh, it's possible to basically lease a person uh, who has been enhanced to be an incredible orator. And you can put this person in your rec room, if you like, like a stereo. And when you want to hear some crazy talk on a certain subject, you can go in there and hit play and that person will deliver. And in fact, if you have the resources, you can hire at least 10 of them and you can get some singers and you can, you know, so um, that's the basic riff. And we're looking at one family and one particular guy who's who's hung up on this wall and loves it. He loves it. It's like he's he's a superstar to himself. Uh, and then hilarity ensues. <laughs> yeah, and it is a lot of hilarity, but it's also a lot of big hearted. Oh, no, George just did that. And obviously, I'm going to stay away from some of those details because it's it's really a pleasure to read. But I didn't quite know when we opened up and I was like, OK, here's George playing with language because here are the invented words for the invented things. And you know, AI obviously is only as good as the people who program it. And I mm. consider that the same for made up humans in your short stories. <laughs> I'm thinking, okay, where is this going? But you never lose sight of anyone's humanity. And I think that's really, really important. This is not a stunty short story. This isn't about sort of what we can do. It's more, oh, yeah. Oh, everyone's still a person. And right. that's the piece where we always get that with you. It's just sometimes it's a little more circuitous yeah. than not. So did you start with the idea though, or did you start with our guy? I think I started, as I remember it, it was just this weird, I'm looking for something to write about. Uh, I was writing a screenplay for the Semple Girl, Semple Girl Diaries, which has got a sort of a similar idea. Uh, I had the phrase, the singers in mind from that Turgenev story from the Russians. And I also, sometimes with me, there's just a desire to do a crazy voice. And I, I wanted to, I'd written, I think before this, there's a story in the book called The Mom of Bold Action, which is very clipped down and kind of, you know, so I wanted to just do a crazy voice. And so I thought, who could do a crazy voice? And somehow this idea just popped out. In a story like that, I'm kind of aware that it's stunty. It, it is actually at the beginning. So mm -hmm. then I say, okay, well, now I have to reclaim it. I have to right. have it be both stunty and beautiful. And that's the revision process. And that involves keep, you know, keeping you in mind and going, well, you know, if Miwa is reading, you know, or someone is intelligent and well-read and is reading this story, she's going to start suspect, suspecting me of stuntiness right here. Okay, <laughs> how can I, how can I go, no, I, how can I say to her, I see it. No, no, watch this. Boom. Yeah. Then you go, oh, okay, I guess I, I guess he was over there on the other side of the page. Okay, I'll stick with him a little longer. So that's the whole process for me is to try to imagine you or someone like you who's in it, but not infinitely in it, you know. And then at make adjustments along the way. Does the reader feel that these aren't human beings? Uh-oh, that's bad. Let's make sure that she knows that they are. You know, so it's it's really, a, I mean, it's kind of a corny metaphor, but I've used it before. If you were out, were out to lunch with a friend or you were on a date, you know, you're constantly looking across the table, like, how am I doing? How am I doing? 
And if the person starts looking angry, you go, uh-oh, what did I do? You know, and then you, you, you might even say, are you angry? Suddenly you're back on track with the person. That to me is what revision is really about, especially in a crazy story like this one. And you've always thought about your readers as you've been working. I mean, ever since you started sitting down to write, you yeah. have always thought about the readers. And I thought that was interesting because there are a lot of writers who are like, yeah, I just have to do the thing and then we'll see what happens. But you really have always been very, very clear about that. Yeah, that was the, the, the time. I mean, literally, I went from the track called Getting Older, Not Published to Still Getting Older, but at least I published by just recognizing that part that, you know, I had a natural entertainer in me from, from the time I was a little kid, mostly humor, you know, uh, and I just had kept that out of the out of the mix. And as soon as I said, oh, yeah, no, you are supposed to keep a reader on the line. Otherwise, nothing happens. There's no theme. There's no politics. There's no nothing unless you keep the person engaged. So for me, that felt like a real relief and a kind of permission giving like, just just keep the person interested. You try to do that every day, you know. So that was a big, a big step for me. And then the, the amazing thing is if you accept that, if you're a person who feels that way, every single phrase is then fraught with import because you can lose a person with one phrase. You can lure them back in with another phrase. Um, the, the tricky part is I'm not really thinking of a particular reader because that's impossible, but I'm kind of thinking of me if I hadn't already read it. That's I'm simulating that. And then that's by implication, that's also you. You know, it's anybody that I think is really alert and intelligent in, in the game, you know. Is there space for you to surprise yourself when you're working like that? I mean, I realize you're not writing from outlines and you do, I mean, you noodle ideas before you sit down, obviously, but is there a moment oh. where you get to say, oh, wow, what did I just do? It's, oh, no, it's constantly that. Okay. It is. Because in a certain way, you could see it as a series of platforms. So, you know, I get to page six, paragraph four. I kind of know where I am. I kind of theoretically know where you are. So that presents a range of possibilities. And I would say for me, that makes surprise more possible because I know, I kind of know where we are together and then I can blurt something out. And also there's something operating under the surface that's way ahead of me, you know, that, that, you know, so, you know, that's the, for me, that's the great fun of it is to have written a story to a certain point. And of course your mind projects forward and says, oh, I see where I'm going with this. Yeah, of course I do. And then you go in and the sub subconscious goes, no, you don't, you know, and then you're like, oh God, that's great. You know, so you no, know, every, when I'm writing pretty much every day, there's a little surprise burst somewhere along, along the way. And if there isn't, I'm probably on a bad path, you know. Okay, because, I mean, you do have that line where you're like, why am I telling this? I mean, you've yeah. said it before, not just in, but it is something I know you think about all the time. It's like, what's the point of telling this story? Yeah. And for me, when I'm experiencing your work, I'm always thinking, well, George wants me to understand another human being in a way that I didn't previously. I mean, I love this image that you use where a story is sort of a black box and you walk into the black box. And if you have done what you have intended to do, then I'm a different person when I leave the black box. Yeah. And I think that's really impossibly important, especially with some of the journalism you've done as well, too. It's just there's so much out there where literature can change us. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, and it partially brings me back to your long ago statement of, of great writing being hard reading. It's like, well, no, it's the things that you do in sort of deceptively simple language, you are not mm. a flowery, I mean, mm. you're just, you've never been a flowery dude ever. No. But I love this idea that you can see into people because you're looking for the bigger truth. Yeah, I think a lot of this, it, it really does, it's funny how for me, it comes down to the micro level. Mm -hmm. Like all mm -hmm. those things you're saying, I totally agree with every one of them. If I sat down to say, 
I want you to understand another person. I would have a little trouble with that. I'd have it look procedurally. I'd have trouble. So then if I take it down to the level of, um, I'm looking for the next good line or, ne- or, you know, what's the best way to get this person across the room. If a writer's trying to be specific, well, if a writer's trying to make it come alive in your mind, she's going to want to be specific. If she's specific, the sentences are going to get better by almost by definition. Um, if the sentences are better in the direction of specificity, that's going to make you see a more complete person than before in terms of the character. You're going to care. More. So all these things are kind of um, clustered. And for me, the great anxiety reducer is they're basically technical. You know, like if I have to think, oh, I have to be a, I've got a reputation uphold. I've got to be a spacious lover of humanity. I'm not writing that day, you know. But if I think, well, this paragraph, I wonder if you can make it better. And better contains all of that stuff in a certain way. So if you, and I work really obsessively over and over. So a series of better paragraphs is suddenly doing something, you know, something that, that might seem moral ethical or whatever, but uh, it's almost like a trick. I, ha- I can't look at that, but I look at the line by line stuff and trust that I'm infusing it with that. If I'm making it better, you know, listening to you talk about craft though, it's, there's this push and pull of you where you're not a planner, but you're very controlled and very disciplined in the art piece of it. Yes, that's a, to exactly get right. To the large, and it's it's wild where I'm yeah. sort of thinking, well, no, you just make it look really easy. <laughs> well, I think, I think, yeah, well, that's the goal is to make it look like you didn't try. But I think I always th- thought it was fun to have two hats. Like one is the anal compulsive OCD, you know, and the other one is the groovy, I don't care guy. And in a certain way, you're taking those on and off, even within a couple seconds of writing. You know, you're uh, tightly controlling the sentence, and then you can sort of feel like you need a gust of weirdness, and you just switch hats in midstream. You know, so it's very interesting. It's very, um, I think, of all the ways that I've uh, that I know to learn about yourself and learn about life. For me, writing fiction has been so huge. You know, because that that push and pull is really true. Like the avoidance of autopilot for me is a big thing. And, you know, the, the idea that we always want to go on autopilot. We, I just want to say, I'm a great guy, good husband, good father, wonderful writer. End of story. Let's have the rest of my life now. But every minute is saying, you know, you don't get to do that. And in a story, the minute you start coasting, the reader feels it and she drops out. So, uh, or, you know, if you say, should a, should a story be funny or serious? Like, well, yeah. You know, that, that you can't go on autopilot and say, I'm only funny. So that's, it's a good training, I think, especially later in life where uh, I guess you sort of feel like I'm so old, I should be, I should know everything, shouldn't I? You know, should I have to really litigate? Uh, but the story says, oh, yeah, you know, you, you might be old in years, but you're still a dummy on the page. So you have to stay off autopilot and, you know, you have to negotiate with every single moment that you make in the story and there's no way around it. Yeah. And I know it all is fun to read about, but it's not fun to be around <laughs> yeah because you're not really in that conversation with the with the story uh i like i like the notion of two people kind of huddle together over the, the character like oh look what happened to her yeah that's weird isn't it you know and of course the writer's slightly in the lead because you know he made it up but there is that sense of of uh armor on the shoulder and oh look at those human beings down there they're they're struggling you know can we talk yeah. about the cadence of the way the stories appear in order in this book, because it feels like you're very deliberate in sort of, well, cadence. I mean, music, mm-hmm. the musicality yes. of the individual stories, certainly, and, and the prose in the individual stories, but also 
as a whole, I mean, you're thinking too, once you get to the last piece, which is assembling the collection and deciding what genuinely makes the cut, but how they appear. That's very perceptive. Being music is exactly right. What, what uh -huh. I do I mean, mechanically is I have, I take an index card and I put the first and last line of the story on it and the title. And then I just do four or five days of Rubik's Cube, just moving around. And, and as you're intuiting, the, the, um, the sound is a lot of it. Like he, I, I don't want two stories back to back that sound the same. Sometimes there'll be a kind of like, a, you know, as with in chemistry, you know, two molecules will link. So those stories have to be adjacent. This, this one. So then, it's, so it's really a Rubik's Cube kind of form of, well, it's rewriting, really. You know, you're taking that order and saying, well, it's a different book if I put them in a different order. Uh, and then you're looking for the magic combination. And it's kind of a crazy, maddening process because sometimes you get it just right. And then two of the stories that shouldn't be together are the last two. You're like, oh. <laughs> um, but I, somebody, I read somewhere, it's like putting an album together. You know, you, for, I mean, on a crass level, you want the first one to be pretty good and the last one and something in the middle to hold it up, you know, and then, but yeah, but, but that's, you know, again, like it's so interesting because to have uh, experiment with the different story orders, it's generally a different book and it leaves you in a different place at the end. So even into that last step, you're, you're discovering your own book, you know, arrange this way. It means this arrange that way. It means that, huh? Which book do I want to write? You know? Yeah. I really love the pairing of liberation day and the mom of bold action. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I kind of felt like when I did that, I remember thinking, okay, so the person comes out Liberation Day and like, oh, what's with this crazy guy? And then right away, it's very kind of almost a prim story, like very factual, very simple. So I love, I love the idea that, I mean, this is probably not an idea that every writer would like, but I kind of like the idea of the reader on the other side with one of those big reject, you know, or like those ejection seats thing, like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Oh, all right, I'll stick with them. You read Liberation Day maybe that's too much for you. Then you see that other mom of old action. Like, oh, that's more my speed. You take your hand off the thing. Or sometimes if things, if there's three stories in a row that you're just like, I don't know who the hell this guy is, your hand isn't on that lever because you're trying to find out, you know? So the other thing I appreciate about that story too, though, is you're playing with some big socio-political ideas um, and baking becomes a thing. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> baking becomes a thing. Everyone can go and read the story itself. But are you starting with voice? Because I really feel like voice for you, once you get that piece, you can go anywhere. 100%. Yeah, that's right. And if I can get that, uh, I don't have any worries. And, and what I mean by get it is if I can stumble on a voice that's fun for me, that I feel I can sustain in a lot of different weathers. And and also one that hopefully will grow a little bit and evolve. As, but yeah, that's it for me. And that's a way of turning off a quality I have of overdetermining. That's why I'm such a mm -hmm, freak about, mm -hmm. about freedom is I'm, I'm a control freak. So <laughs> if I have a good voice, then I'm concentrating on that instead of theme, you know, or instead right. of where I want to sort of end up. Um, but on that one, I, you know, actually it's kind of, a, I don't know if I should confess this, but if that first part of that story fell off of another story from years ago. Oh, okay. Yeah. Please, let's talk about this because yeah. I did not know. I mean, I'm not totally surprised, but I mean, it's yeah. why no, not I, go dictate? I do it all the time. But, if something you know. is like, you know, because I have this very rigorous idea of who, which parts get into a story and which don't. So that first opening came, I think, was from 10th of December, that story years ago. And there was a, in that story, there's a little boy who goes off on an adventure and gets in trouble. Mm -hmm. I thought, okay, let me see if I can write his mom at home waiting for him. So I wrote the first couple jokes, you know. 
Uh, and it turns out that story just didn't need it. It was too long already, and there, she wasn't really serving a purpose in that story except to receive him. So I took it out. And I'm like, that's pretty funny. And I just set it aside for all these years. And then at some point, I came back to it. And what's interesting is when you do that, you take the vignette out of the story it didn't want to be in. It suddenly goes, oh, wow, I feel so free. It knew it didn't belong in that story, and it was kind of crimped. So now suddenly it's in freedom and it can do what it liked. And so then I, I feel really good about that. Like, okay, yeah, that used to be in that story, but it just blundered in there by mistake. And now we're, the voice was already there uh -huh. and it was okay. a particular voice. And then, you know, and certainly all the themes were there too. It was a story that um, wasn't a lot of, uh, I mean, it was a lot of work, but it wasn't bad work. It was like, it, it just kept opening up in front of me as I, as I went, which is really a, kind of a first and, and a real pleasure. And the way it sits with Love Letter, which is the third story in the collection, it's epistolary. And I really had to sit with that. I, ha I had to sit with Love Letter when I was done reading it because it made the hair stand up on the back of my neck. Mm -hmm. Because you realize what's happening is it's a grandfather speaking to his grandson. And we are in a really difficult moment in America as the grandfather's talking to his grandson and saying, hey, listen, you know, da 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 da. And you realize what's unfolding and it's not just grandfather who clearly loves his grandchild mm -hmm. but at the same time they are in very different points because the grandfather has made some not great choices right right and i think that's the best way to sort of hint at it without giving mm -hmm. away the ghost but can we talk about how that sits in connection because the thematically they are siblings uh Mom mm. of Bold Action and, yeah. and Love Letter. And I just, they're very intense when they're together. And I highly mm. recommend reading them back to back. I mean, story collections, yes, you can dip in and out. But I would argue that Liberation Day, best experienced front to back. I've read it <laughs> two different ways, front to back and also just dipping around. And I think it's really important in this oh, particular case to read these stories in this order, which I don't usually say. Usually I'm like, do whatever you want with the story collection. Right. But I felt like the emotional power, because I'm looking for a better word than power and I can't find one at the moment, really starts to build. And then when you hit my house at the end, you're just kind of like... Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I will say I, I took a lot of trouble to get that order. So, mm -hmm. I, you know, but that's a really interesting... I hadn't thought of that before, but those two being linked. But you're absolutely right about that. I, I, with Love Letter, I, I mean, I sometimes what's, what you're, with a story, what you're doing is you're kind of waiting for it to become a story, which means often it means the character stops being you, you know, you, you, I, that's the way I just started being like, Oh, here's how I feel about things. And then suddenly it, he was a little different from me. He was a little more of a quizzling, I guess, or a little more. Um, I mean, the world also is 10 years, 10 years or 15 years from now and things have gotten worse. So for me, the interesting tension in there was I couldn't tell what I thought about his stance. I thought, yeah, I, I, I do understand what you're saying. And maybe, you know, if it's Stalinist Russia, uh, maybe you would counsel someone to whisper, you know, maybe that would be smart. Right. On the other hand, you do that too soon, then you're enabling. Um, so I thought for me, the, the power of that story was that he sort of comes to that realization sort of, or starts to by the end. That's what for me made it a short story was he's not, he stopped being me and he seemed to be in the process of an important change, you know, which could be very dangerous for him and his grandson. But talk to me a little bit about, I'm interested, that linkage between the Mom of Bold Action and the Love Letter. Why, do you, why would you recommend pairing those? One is the controlled voice. Mom is very controlled in the way she speaks and the way she presents her POV. And I think you see a similar shift 
in her POV, when she has that moment where she realizes sort of what's going on with her husband, but not quite mm-hmm. in the way she talks about it, but her language gets a little mm-hmm. looser mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in a way. And she's, and, and mm-hmm. she's having a hard time admitting what he's going through. And wow, mm-hmm. do we sound vague right now, but you know what I'm talking about. But he's, you know, he's crying and he's not doing well and he's having a hard time at work because he has done something very inconsiderate yeah. and based on something that she wrote. And she's beginning to think kind of the way Grandpa in Love Letters mm. is, that, that tiny shift where it's like, oh. Right. And she just makes a different decision than Grandpa. So. Right. Now, that's interesting. Yeah. I feel mm. like there's a little mm. bit of horror for each of them when they realize that they are, in fact, a bigger piece of this story than they thought. They thought they were just kind of living their lives. Right, right, right. Oh, that's really, that's really. And the consequences yeah. are really significant yeah. for other you, people. And I think there are a lot of people, George, who go through life just thinking, oh, la, 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 I'm just la, la, la. And then no one likes consequences when they're significant yeah. or hard. Deborah Eisenberg wrote a great introduction to um, that book, Memoirs of an Anti-Semite, that Gregory. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And in there, I, I'm going to get the quote all mangled, mm-hmm. but, it's, but it's the idea that for big bad things to happen Mm -hmm. Uh, all that is required is that a lot of people stay neutral yes you know it's the the bad idea havers are can be few in number and very energetic but if the rest of us are just kind of like neutral then inactivity is it becomes a historical action when you multiply it by 20 million so i think that's that's really interesting what you're saying because that guy that grandfather isn't he's not i don't think he's he just didn't give it much thought. I mean, he, or maybe he, maybe his options were limited, but you multiply him by 20 million and you've got a big silence, you know, maybe. I don't know. So I'm a little more suspicious, I think, of the grandfather than you are. I'm a mm. little suspicious that he's dancing around his actual behavior because I think it's mm. very easy for people to tell themselves stories about what they've done and how they've done it and right. what the repercussions might be. Right. And so, again, like we all bring whatever our experience is to the pages, readers, our own life experience. A book is going to be different for everyone. When I realized how Mama Bold Action was about to spin a little bit, when when dad goes out and does what he does, does his thing. Okay, but you'll drop little lines in about, you know, so and so grew up in the community and this store and like, okay, here's a very simple experience. The mom of bold action is talking about how she's always supported this tiny, tiny store in her town. And it turns out she shopped there once on sale. (laughs) Right, right. So, and and that's an example I feel like I can give away without giving away sort of the heartbeat of the story. No, that's really, that's true. I think that's in a lot of the book, it's it's a mode I like to write in, Mm -hmm. which is, there's another example from this Mother's Day where a woman says, my daughter, I was very free with her. I always Mm -hmm. encouraged her to be exactly the kind of girl she wanted to be. And I have no problem with it. Although, I wish she would have been more blah, blah, blah. So mm-hmm. I think that that's a mode that I'm, from my own head, I'm really familiar yeah. with. You know, we, we make these stories in which we're the hero, you know, the unassailable hero. But underneath there, there's a lot of, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of complication. Well, and then we've got Brenda and Gwen in A Thing at Work. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they are great <laughs> examples of the same thing. I mean, and that story too, like the story Brenda's telling herself and the story that Gwen tells herself. And then there's the boss in the middle going, yeah. Okay, can I just play with my trucks? Because yeah. I don't really know yeah, what to was, do with any of this. That was a really fun one. I can see how that story could have gone in like nine different directions. Yeah, it did. It did. Okay. Believe me. Yeah. 
You know, there's a, I just got to hear the audiobook for the first time, and um, Edie Patterson reads that one. And it's just amazing what she brings out in it. You know, all the things that, like the kind of secret voices I had in my head, she kind of nailed them. And uh, it, it was an interesting experience. You know, you, you finish a book, and then you don't really look at it for probably four or five months while you're going through the final thing. And so, and then, then I heard it and it was really interesting to hear your own story and kind of go, huh, well, that's, you know, there's a lot of internal tension in there. I think I maybe um, put it in there and forgot about it in a certain way and then revised the rest. I sometimes think of us as just a storm, you know, three different people and their inner monologues and their actions and and it all being kind of dynamic and, and, uh, you know, wild. If the voice is there, I'll follow you. The question is, how will I feel at the end of it? And sometimes I will right. be very annoyed that I followed someone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the no, story that's really, didn't pay off. That's interesting. Yeah, because voice, you know, I think um, voice is, is ethos, really. I mean, if, you know, and I, I stumbled on this early. I, I started to get a distaste for the omniscient voice a little bit. I, I, not, not a distaste, but when I tried to do it, it was false. Whereas if I said, okay, no, I'm, as quickly as possible, I'm going to try to get in the voice of a character. Then I felt like, uh, okay, so of course he's subjective. Of course he's biased. Of course he's got a weird view. I don't even have to worry about what it is. If I keep doing the voice, he'll reveal himself. And I don't have to take responsibility for him. But I think if the writer doesn't understand the voice she's made mm, yeah, as being separate, as being a character, then sometimes that remains unaccounted for at the end of a story and you feel a little, a little unmoored or something. But, but I love this idea that, you know, what, what's the world? It's just a bunch of subjective viewpoints who all yeah. think they're at the center and they're all yammering. And, you know, and, and I love that as, as a guide to voice. I really like that idea. Are you thinking you might do a novel That's, again at some point or you just, I mean, stories really are your sweet spot without a doubt. They yeah, are I love them spot. so much. And, you know, I love them because, you know, in a certain way you don't have to, it's almost like um, you can do pretty good for a short amount of time. You know, you don't, if you if a story turns out to be one of your sevens, you know, out of tens, that's all right. It, it doesn't take you the rest of your life and, and it will do something that's worth doing and maybe you can get it up to an eight. Um, so I really love the, the flexibility of, of the story. But on the other hand, I loved writing that Lincoln book. It was yeah. a whole different, not completely different, but it was so immersive and um mm-hmm. So I would love to do something like that again, but I think what I liked about that one was it was such a weird one-off in terms of its form. The f- I felt like the form was perfectly suited to material and it made it easy. So if something like that came along, I'd love love it, but I didn't get that book by trying. I, I got that book by not trying, by trying not to. You know, I was I avoided that book for 20 years and pushed it off and denied it and left it out in the cold. Uh, and then finally, you know, at some point it said, look, you have to try me or you're going to be so sad. And I said, oh, all right, come on in. We'll try you, you know. So I resisted it very strongly for a long time. That's a trip because having read it and also listened to the audiobook, which cannot recommend enough, please just go listen to the audio. It's a great, great, great fun experience. Um, and I also love hearing opposite all the time. <laughs> it's not yeah. a phrase you hear that often <laughs> yeah, anymore. No. And I'm just Almost like, never. Yeah, pretty much. But upset, upset. It just, I, it made me giggle um, because that's the kind of listener I can be where I'm like, oh, I understand. And just experiencing something on audio versus reading it on the page. I mean, you read A Swim in the Pond and you're reading two of the stories in this collection and then the rest you sort of have guest readers, which right. I like the idea of. And it's just, I think it's important to acknowledge form. And again, you know, obviously I work in audio. I care about these things. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. But I think it's really important to be able to sit with the voice of someone who's also sort of interpreting your words in a different way, because you're reading differently than you're writing. Yes. And I'm reading differently than I'm hearing it, because I can hear yeah. the voices, but I can't quite accomplish them, right. you know, so, so. But I, I love the idea of, um, you know, a book a celebration, like if they have a book and, and to put it out in audio in a really fun format, that's just fun, you know. And I think if I'm uh, shilling for anything, it's that the story is fun. It's a story is the most fun. And it's, it, you know, they're finding out now, neurologists are finding out that storytelling is absolutely what, I mean, it's not like it's something we love to do. It's something we do every instant. And they found out that your, um, your, your brain will make a first draft of reality. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. it's revising it from sensory data. And this process apparently happened. It's, the first draft is located at the back of your head. And as, and as it refines re, it, the front part of your brain becomes active. So when we read a story, it's so uh, organic to what we do naturally. So I think it's a kind of a rarefied or kind of a, uh, a special time, you know, to slow that process down and observe the mind at work. You know? One of the ways I like sort of describing books that really I love, love, love is that a book tattooed itself on the back of my brain. That's how I describe it. I did not realize, though, that there is an actual scientific thing that happens, yeah. like a physiological thing that happens with that. But I've been saying it for years just huh. because there are books that you end up internalizing. You know, the way you've internalized the Russians or Toby yes. or, you know, I think... 100%. And they, they find out that they found out that the, um, the place and the method that you store a story is very, very analogous to the way you store a real experience. Very close. They're very close. So, you know, so it's in a sense, it's sort of like a prosthetic experience set, you know, <laughs> that you get to add on. And so you're not just stuck with the X number of years of your life. You get all these other ones in there. And, and I, I always think of that phrase, uh, moral armament, you know, you read enough Chekhov, you go in the world and somehow it's it's more workable for you because you've got your moral armament has sort of been, uh, you know, upgraded. Well, and also knowing that you're not the only person who might think a certain way. I think there's quite 100%. a lot of loneliness in the world, especially sort of now in recent times mm. where things are weird. Yeah, yeah. But I think the idea that you can connect with someone and, and hear something, even if it's a writer who lived, you know, 200 years before you or 500 years, the idea that you can see yourself in the details of yes. someone else's thought or even life. I mean, sometimes it's memoir, sometimes it's nonfiction, but yeah. just to be able to see the truth in a single line and make yes. your eyes sort of light up. I mean, that's for me, that's one of the great pleasures of it's, reading where I can connect with someone that I may not have anything in common with. And that's yes. okay. Like I don't need to share commonalities. I just kind of want to have my mind blown. And the reminder that you're on a continuum with that person, yeah. whoever they might be in that. And yeah, and I think that's really beautiful in this time right now, we're feeling, you know, more alone. And I think in, in solitude, the projection, projective mind gets fearful. And I think what happens is you sit at home and you go, oh, everybody hates me. Then you go get coffee and the guy's nice to you and like, oh, a correction. They don't, you know, but if you're just in the apartment with the projection, uh, you know, I think we see some of the effects of that now. People's, mm -hmm. uh, and then you add to the projection, you add the internet, and we, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a whole, whole nother conversation. But yeah. I am going to shout out Story Club, your subsack, because it's fun. And I don't read it every week. And sometimes I let it build up and I read it all at once. But it is really fun. And I love seeing the way people respond to what you're talking about. You had the Zora Neale Hurston story, you've done a Hemingway. It's been so much fun. It's the most positive. I, I kind of jokingly say it's the most positive place on the internet. People are mm -hmm. so into these wonky, yeah. this wonky approach to stories, and we have a lot of fun.
I wouldn't say it's wonky. I would just say it's a new way of thinking. And I just, you know, I'm picky about language sometimes, George. For me, wonky is praise. It's a tech head. It's a technical. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Then I will take that because I'm just like, well, no, I love the idea that you're changing the way that people think. And, you know, we need to maybe not always sit around and think I have the answer. I know exactly what's going on here. It's more like there's a little bit of pop, a little bit of sizzle, a little bit of the unexpected and a lot of play. Right. And you can't not talk about the bad stuff. I mean, not every story is, you know, the easiest thing to read. But at the same time, you know, joy sits with whatever the antithesis is. You know, love and grief are literally the same entity. And I just, I think we need to acknowledge that. Yeah, there's a lot of power in becoming comfortable with, with one's own uncertainty. I think that's yeah. really the most powerful. And in, in my life, when I look back at the times when I felt like I was the most useful and powerful, it's mm-hmm. when I just like, I don't know, but I'm okay with it, you know, and, and you become a better listener, you become a little funnier, I think. And, uh, but I think in times like these, sometimes it feels like being certain is the antidote. And I, and I, I don't think that's the case. No, I'd rather just hang out with you. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I'd just rather talk story with you. (laughs) For sure. It's been a great hour. (laughs) Thank you so much, George Saunders. It is always, always, always a treat to listen to you. Uh, Liberation Day is out now. Thank you. I really enjoyed being with you, Mila. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off, where we recommend books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of Liberation Day by the amazing George Saunders. I'm Mark. I'm coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati. And I am Madison, coming to you from the Barnes & Noble in Indianapolis. Fantastic. So we've got a couple of great books to cover today. Uh, Madison, if you don't mind, I'll jump right in. Yeah, go ahead. So I was thinking about short stories. I love George Saunders. I think 10th of December is a nearly perfect book. And I've been reading a lot of collections lately. Uh, the most recent that I think is certainly worth talking about is Boys, Beasts, and Men by Sam J. Miller. Uh, this is a collection that is pretty wild. Um, it's got a lot of horror elements. It's got a lot of science fiction and speculative elements. The thing I like about it the most is that each story centers around a gay man, which I really haven't read in genre fiction in this way. Uh, It's really refreshing. It's beautifully done. Uh, You've got characters like a young boy dealing with his sexuality, a violent soldier looking for some kind of peace and beauty in the world, a father trying to connect with his gay son. Some of them are incredibly bizarre. Some of them are truly frightening. And some of them are just really funny and weird and great. One of my favorites is one called When Your Child Strays from God. It's written like a church newsletter by this uh, very conservative Christian mother who's trying to connect with her wayward son and decides to take this new strain of hallucinogenic drug to try to see if she can find this boy. Oh my God, it's so weird and I love it. So if you are in the mood for more wonderful, crazy short stories or you want to get excited for the spooky season, please check out Boys, Beasts, and Men by Sam J. Miller. Madison, do you have one for us? Yes, I do. I'm definitely adding yours to my TBR. It sounds amazing. So, but mine, it actually is not a short story collection. So mine is a sci-fi fiction novel. It is The Cabinet by Kim Unsu. I think it is perfect for fans of short stories because of how the chapters are set up. 
So just kind of like imagine yourself as an office worker. Every day you come in, do the same thing, and then you go into this abandoned room and there's this cabinet. And you're like, oh, I wonder what's in here. You know, this main character, he opens the cabinet and it's just full of peculiar, wonderful, interesting people. So he stumbles into a cabinet he has to take responsibility for of people with mutations. And one of my favorites is the man who has a ginkgo tree growing out of his finger. <laughs> and so he has to go and interview this man um, about the ginkgo tree growing out of his finger. And it just keeps growing and growing and growing and kind of like sucking the life out of this man, but he doesn't want to cut it off. There's another one of a man who wants to turn into a cat because he wants the woman he loves to love him back and she loves cats. So you have all these like peculiar, <laughs> interesting people and the main character has to follow them along. So I think it's perfect because it's kind of broken in chapter by chapter of short stories. You don't know if you're going to get a heartbreaking tale or if it's going to be witty and funny. It definitely keeps you guessing. And then the main character wraps it up in this amazing like bow, but not like a beautiful bow, a very like insane, you don't see the ending coming bow. And it is amazing. And I would highly recommend it. And that is The Cabinet by Kim Unsu. Fantastic. I have been wanting to read that book. I keep eyeing it as I walk by the shelves. And it's been on my TBR for a while, but I think it's time to bump it up. That is all we have for today. Thank you <laughs> so, so much for listening and on and Poured Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Uh, you can also follow us at Barnes & Noble. Pretty simple. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. And I am Madison. You can follow my home store at BN River Crossing. Thanks, everybody. Happy reading. Bye. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.